1: As the war in Ukraine stretches into its third week, the city of Kharkiv, which used to be the capital, has been among the worst hit. Dozens of civilian deaths and hundreds of injuries.
3: The shocking sight of cluster
0: bombs raining down on residential neighbourhoods. The administration would like to inform you that a fire has started in the building. For that reason, please go to the ground floor
3: and from there leave the building. An entire street totally destroyed.
1: What's it like to report from a city devastated by war while it's still being constantly bombarded?
0: I try and go down the road as best I can to report from bad places to give a voice to people who are living under, you know, the shadow of fear.
1: You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the war in Kharkiv. We catch up with two of the most experienced journalists in the business, The Times veteran war correspondent Anthony Lloyd and chief news photographer Jack Hill.
0: My name's Anthony Lloyd and I'm a reporter for The Times.
1: Well, and before we begin, just how are you?
0: I'm fine, I'm fine, but I have been on the road since January the 9th, uh, apart from one week's break, so I'm, I'm quite tired at this stage again.
1: Yeah, I'm not surprised. And um, wh- where are you at the moment?
0: I'm in the city of Dnipro, which is in southeastern Ukraine. I've been here for about 24 hours.
1: We've communicated a bit in the last few weeks since you've been out there and it hasn't been easy this reporting job. I mean, just talk us through some of the challenges you've faced.
0: Well, most of the challenges to reporting in Ukraine are logistical. Reporting is obviously the aim, but you've got huge country, country sizes, kind of Germany and France put together. You've got various lines of Russian advance going into the country. So you've got various routes which are cut off. You don't want to get the wrong side of a Russian advance and get encircled. But more to the point, you've got to have good wheels. You've got to have a good car. Now, it's not as simple as just in most wars you would hire a car and a driver. But everybody here is deeply concerned by their own, all the locals, by their own fate and their own family's fate. So if you hire a driver in one city he will be less than likely to be enthused about driving to another city because he'll be leaving his family behind. So there are all those considerations. Then fuel's a problem because fuel's limited. Mm -hmm. Food's a problem because most shops are closed. Accommodation's not completely a problem but in some cities that's also a problem because you'll find that some cities are almost deserted or everyone lives in the underground stations and there's no hotels in some cities so there's a huge amount of logistical problems which you've got to address in order to be able to report and then i mean in my case i've got a team of four people the driver the interpreter the photographer i'm working with jack hill um, so that's four people, each with some shared, but also different concerns and thoughts. And you've got to keep that together as four people, sometimes in fairly or extremely dangerous circumstances and environments. It's a perpetually stressful environment, wherever you are.
1: I can imagine. How have you got around some of these problems?
0: Uh, brought a car. Um,
1: <gasps> How do you go car shopping in, in Ukraine right it's now? It's
0: difficult. It's difficult. I did it actually online, but most people have either fled and head westwards in their cars or the banking system's down in in many areas. And so I ended up paying cash for a car, but then, you know, I had to end up getting seven thousand dollars in cash which i didn't have and then i was trying to deal with a fraud department in the bank who weren't happy with what i was doing and i didn't want to say i'm in ukraine i was kind of like mm, yeah, it takes I'm a lot of explaining and right in the middle of the conversation the air raid sirens went off and they're like what's that and i'm like well i think it's just a burglar alarm <laughs> um you know whatever it was a bit of a nightmare
1: what's your new car like
0: well, it works so far, so that's...
1: <laughs> that's operational.
0: something. That's something, yeah. I I got it checked out by a mechanic and it's got us to Kharkiv and back and didn't let us down, so long may it last.
1: <laughs> and I suppose a lot of the difficulties and the logistical difficulties too also come from just how quickly this has all escalated. I mean, we spoke to you in Kiev, I think, at the time, you know, it feels like a few weeks ago, and it still seemed like life was pretty normal.
0: Yeah, life was normal right up until the day before the invasion. I mean, I think most people in Kiev, I mean, in many wars, you see in the build up to war sandbags going up and people taping their windows against blast and, and all the rest of it. You certainly didn't see any of that in Kiev right up until the invasion began. I think most Ukrainians, I'm not even saying it was naivety. I, I didn't think there would be a war. I kind of looked at the, the amount of troops that The Russians had amassed, and I thought that's not going to be enough troops to invade and capture the whole country. Even if they did do that, I did not believe that it would deliver them the strategic aim that they might want, which is overthrowing this government and and supplanting it with one of their choice. And so I saw it logically, and most Ukrainians did too, and that wasn't the case. The Russians decided to invade anyway. The first forty-eight hours was shocking for everybody and I was braced for it. I remember having a cigarette and looking out into the night. And it was a very, very still night, and there was just that awful realization like it's gonna happen. This is gonna happen, and it's gonna happen within a few hours.
1: That morning, Anthony spoke to Times Radio. Let's speak to Anthony Lloyd now, who is the Times' war correspondent. What can you see here?
0: Well, it started here, good morning, it started here at about 5am. started off with artillery pre-dawn, the sound of, you know, very heavy detonations just from the outskirts of the town I'm in. There's a continuing backdrop sound of artillery. There's been surface-to-surface missiles coming in at a nearby airfield. But then, as the days go by, you get a little bit more sense of the kind of pace and speed of the war, and you get a bit more sense of its form. It keeps changing. Once you get the first couple of days past, you kind of learn to deal with it a bit.
1: Yeah. Tell us about that because a lot of the journalists have been in the capital, having to broadcast live from bunkers, or they've been in the west where it feels safer. You know, you're quite unusual in that you're sort of travelling around. Oh, is that the air raid siren?
0: Yeah, that's the air raid siren.
1: So, should you be Should you be running somewhere? No,
0: I think it's a bit late in the day for that. It means that on the Ukrainian systems, they've picked up either surface-to-surface missiles or aircraft moving in the oblast space or moving in in the oblast airspace, oblast being the region.
1: And have you sort of heard enough of them now not to even flinch when when, when they go off?
0: Yeah, they're not. I mean, it's a big city. (laughs) It's a big city.
1: And you don't like bunkers?
0: No, I'm not. I'm not getting down to the bunker
1: and it's still going um, it's
0: still going it will stop um, don't
1: worry at all I are just just wondering whether you and Jack ought to be moving anywhere but no
0: uh, it used to really get to me it doesn't quite so much
1: do you have to sleep through this
0: it sometimes goes off late at night yeah
1: and when it happens in, in Dnipro I mean do they all run to the bunkers or no is everyone everybody quite calm to.
0: everybody used to
1: <laughs> no and then I it just don't. becomes standard yeah <laughs>
0: Usually goes on for about 15 minutes.
1: With the siren going off in the background and unsure of what might follow, we took a break from recording and caught up with Anthony a few minutes later.
0: It's funny, I mean, in some areas, there's no doubt the Russians are using artillery punitively on civilian areas. But it's not quite like Chechnya. They would just, any town or city or village that opposed them, they'd just blast it. Yeah. There's slightly more kind of, I can't say restraint's the right word. Mm. It's not like Chechnya, but it's still pretty bad. And the overall scale of it is huge. There we go. Oh. Phew, thank fuck for that. Right. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Yeah.
1: And now that that air raid siren is, has stopped, um, tell me a bit about your recent visit to Kharkiv, because it's a place that not many journalists have been covering recently.
0: So Kharkiv is Ukraine's second city and was formerly its capital as well. It's a beautiful city, or certainly was a beautiful city, about 1.4 million, 1.5 million in thousands. So at the start of the war, that received some incoming rocket and artillery fire, but not so much, and then the Russians then pushed a very lightly armoured advance into the city. I guess hoping that they could capture it quickly, um, but those vehicles, of course, got you know destroyed and routed by the Ukrainian military. After which, just about eight or nine days ago, the Russians then struck with surface surface missiles at the heart of the city and really started intensifying their shelling of residential areas to the north and northeast, but now have spread that shelling to the west and south as well. It's like an apocalyptic day-after film, not in terms of destruction. There are some areas which are badly destroyed, many areas not so. There's just no one there. I mean, you're just driving down these huge boulevards for ages and ages without seeing anybody, and... You know, like any city that's being attacked, sometimes there's lulls and quiet. Yesterday it was quite quiet, but the two days before that, there was a lot of artillery going out and coming in, and the night was pretty dramatic. The first night we were there it was very dramatic. were jets going very low overhead, there were airstrikes on the city, and there's sure no heroes in an airstrike. I mean, it's really something, really, really thunders and fireballs. One of the jets seemed to get shot down during a bombing run. It was, yeah, it was pretty full-on, very frightened place and a pretty spooky place too.
1: I can imagine. And you met some pretty remarkable people while you were there. Tell me a bit about Yelena and her mother.
0: In a city like that, you've got to have very limited and very simple objectives that you want to achieve as a journalist. The mobile phone network there is very haphazard. People aren't in their offices, all shops are closed, empty streets. A lot of fire outgoing and incoming, but it's a big city, so you're not terrified you're going to get hit by a shell but you don't want to hang around not knowing what you're about either. So one of the most simple things we thought was, right, go to two or three of the city's hospitals and see how many civilian casualties they've got because that will give us an idea of the level of civilians getting hurt in this war. Mm. We visited a couple of the main hospitals and started speaking to the civilian casualties of the war and finding out from them, well, hang on, where were you hit? What were you hit by? Were you at home? Were you on the street? Were you caught in the middle of a gunfight or what? And overwhelmingly, they were not caught in the middle of a gunfight. They were at home, some of them in the street, but most at home when their apartments or houses were hit by Russian artillery. And there were a lot of them too. In this one hospital, we met Yelena, who was 55. She was sales manager. She was the sole carer of her 86-year-old mother, whose name is Galina. I think they were living on the third or fourth floor of an apartment block in the western quarter of the city, southwestern quarter. She had been at home last week, at night, when suddenly two huge rockets impacted outside the apartment block. They just blew straight through the apartment block. I mean, every apartment I saw, it was just, forget the windows being smashed, huge doors were just taken off their hinges in everywhere. Furniture just splintered and and wrecked. I'm amazed more people weren't killed. Yelena had her face carved up by glass and shrapnel. She was totally blinded in one eye and partially blinded in the other. She was carried out by survivors in the night with her mother, who's bedridden, she can't walk. An ambulance turned up, but on inspecting the mother, the 86-year-old, Galena, the ambulance grew like, well, she's not wounded. So they took the daughter away in the confusion of the moment, all covered in blood and carved up with other wounded, and left this 86-year-old woman lying on the snowy ground. So other survivors carried this elderly lady into a ruined first floor apartment, kind of put some blankets over her. You know, no windows, no doors. It's really cold at night. While her daughter, Elena, who we met in the hospital, had glass and shrapnel removed from her face, and she's still seriously injured, life-changing injuries, obviously. Now we met her, and I looked at her face, and she was very composed, very articulate. She wanted to speak to me. You know, of course, I always say to people, you don't have to speak to me, particularly in hospital. She said, I want to speak to you. She described what had happened. And what struck me about her face immediately was daily we're bombarded with all these maps of You know, Russia's roots are advancing from the north and the east and the south and lines and arrows going here. And I looked at this woman's face and I'm like, wow, your face just tells the map of Putin's war. It was carved up by these stitch lines and these bruisings and these colours and iodine-based disinfectant that had been used as well. And as I spoke to her, I just remember thinking, your face is a map of the war.
1: A portrait of Yelena was emblazoned across the front page of The Times last week. It was an arresting image. Yelena in a pink top, a dignified hand on her chest, gazes directly, unflinchingly, into the camera. Her right eye partly shut. It's only by reading the caption that you realize she's lost her sight entirely in one eye and partially in the other. Her face is bruised and scabbed. She has stitches across her forehead, down her cheek, on her lips, her chin, and all down her neck. There are blue-green patches of disinfectant staining her skin. The portrait was captured by the Times photographer, Jack Hill, who was with Anthony in Kharkiv.
3: As a photographer, you get to intuitively converse with people, but usually you're with people who can see and you you know they can engage with your manners and your gestures and, and so on so she, we had very little to connect with. I held her hand and I said through the translator that she could look at where she thinks my voice is coming from because like you say, you know I think she does look dignified. I thought she was incredibly dignified. I wanted to capture a sense of that you know she's obviously suffering but you know I did not want to portray her as a victim even though she is and is you know trying to capture a sense of the person.
1: She's remarkable. It's so striking. And the way she sort of looks towards the camera, I mean, when you were taking the picture, was there a sense that she wanted the world to see this?
3: I think she did. I mean, quite often when people are in terrible situations, they do want people to see what they're going through. They want to share their stories. It's really important for them. And I think it's also part of their process, you know, because these these people are suffering great trauma. And talking about it, I think, I would like to think helps in some way, or having an opportunity to speak to a larger audience. I would like to think she was aware of that. Uh, Certainly the doctor, junior doctor called Ivan, who brought her and a couple of other patients down to speak with us, he was acutely aware of what was going on and how he thought people should see it and see what's happening to people who've done nothing, people who are sleeping in their beds.
1: That's such an, an interesting point. It is sort of, you know, what has happened to people who have done nothing to provoke that sort of violence. For you, taking that picture, what do you hope it'll achieve?
3: I don't know. You know, I mean, we all think in our small way we'd like to make some impact, You know, but you know, I'm, I'm aware and proud of the importance of the times and if the times are using it with Anthony's very strong words, people at least will take notice and without being sort of cliched that no one can say they didn't know. There are myths kicking around, uh, stories kicking around it, These things aren't happening and we've seen it happening and we've reported that it's happening and the paper has published what's happening. That's what I'd like to achieve.
1: Are there moments when you're seeing people in that state where they're at their most desperate and vulnerable, where you just feel like you have to put the camera down for a bit?
3: Uh, Yeah, yeah. Obviously, I'm here for a purpose, here to do a job. And that involves taking pictures and trying to show what's going on. But we met a lady yesterday, Marina. You know, she was looking after an elderly lady and showed us to her apartment and I could see that she was really upset. And she thought, yeah, you know, there are so many times I sometimes put the camera down, it's often not raising it. You think, crikey, that's that's a good picture, but it's just like, no, don't. Mm.
1: And aunt in War Zones, you do get the full spectrum of extreme emotions. You've also witnessed a lot of, Stoicism and even sort of dark humour I mean tell me a bit about The couple Oleg and Victoria Who you spoke to in Kharkiv
0: I met them in the same hospital actually Where I met Yelena And they were lawyers They lived in in an apartment in a smart house They happened in in the centre of Kharkiv Around a week ago they were sitting down to lunch. It happened to be a quiet day in the city before actually the shelling really picked up. They'd opened a bottle of Italian red and put it on the table when at that moment there was a blinding flash. The balcony just disappeared, was torn off the front of the house. The glass came in and this kind of cyclone of fragments, everything got hurled in pieces around the room. Ironically, it's often one notices really odd, abstract details in moments even of extreme trauma, the bottle of Italian wine was not broken. And they both remarked on that. They said it's so weird that everything else, even big things, were just torn apart. The bottle wasn't. They were both blown back, shredded up by glass, blown into the fridge. And with the fridge, went tumbling down the corridor, everything's covered in dust and smoke. As they're staggering outside, covered in blood and everything, Victoria's mobile phone rang and she saw that the caller was her daughter, who's 15, calling from Brussels where she was on some sporting event. She was calling to check on her parents because she had seen on the internet that Shelling was getting worse in, in Kharkiv initially Victoria didn't take the call but as they managed to stumble out of that house their daughter called again this time Victoria took the call and her daughter's like hey mum I'm just kind of calling to see everything's all right you're all right and Victoria said yes I just took a deep breath as any parent word, and was like mm, don't worry darling everything's just fine here <laughs> um, which I thought she knew it was funny and she was telling it to me but I also appreciated that it was just one of those kind of ironic parental moments of "Oh yeah, I don't want to disturb my child the fact that the house has just been blown up by a Russian rocket. I've nearly been killed and I'm staggering around covered in blood and glass. Um, I'm just going to say, yeah, everything's fine.
1: We'll have more from Anthony Lloyd and Jack Hill in just a moment. That's after a message from another colleague in Ukraine.
2: I'm Louise Callahan, a foreign correspondent for The Sunday Times. I'm currently in Ukraine, reporting on the Russian invasion, My colleagues and I report from war zones to shed light on what is really happening on the ground. But I couldn't do that without the help of the readers and listeners of The Times and The Sunday Times. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times.
1: Ant, I want to take you back to 27 years ago. In 1995, you were at the beginning of your career. And you wrote, I'd been a soldier at the end of the Cold War and had heard so much about the Russian army. I wanted to see it in action. I asked my editor if I could go to Grozny, and they agreed. You're now very familiar with the Russian army and how it operates. You've seen it in several war zones. Many people are are drawing comparisons between what's happening now in Ukraine and Russian tactics in Syria and Chechnya. For you, how does this compare?
0: Well, what I would say that in Chechnya, I was in both Chechen wars, the Russian tactics there were generally far more ruthless. I would say that that same ruthlessness was manifested in Syria in Russia's support of the Assad regime. And the Syrian war, for its totality and scale, these are early days. I don't want to say it's worse than this one. We haven't seen what this one's going to turn into yet. But but that was a massive and terrible war. What I see here is the war changing from the fast, optimistic initial thrust that the Russians made in various areas of Ukraine, hoping undoubtedly that the resistance would be light or would crumble, and they could capture Kyiv quickly. That hasn't happened. And so you see the type of war turning now into more traditional Russian siege tactics and shelling of residential areas.
1: And Jack, you know, this isn't the first war zone you've been to. You've, You've worked for the Times for 20 years. You've seen a lot of pretty horrendous stuff. How does this, how does what you've seen in Ukraine compare
3: I feel like I'm just beginning to get to grips with the situation. I've been here for, is it just over two weeks? I arrived the day before the war started, and I travelled straight out east with Anthony. I don't think I've been in a situation where you've got two heavily armed modern armies, one of which is the Russian army, which is one of the biggest in the world, going at it, and you've got some seriously heavy weapons being deployed, particularly Russian Air Force, which is pretty bad in Kharkiv. I mean, inevitably, you come across, you know, incredible human suffering. And, yeah, it's desperate when you see sometimes the most vulnerable and innocent members of a society who are suffering the worst. Yeah, Old people, children. And it inevitably is, ends up, or quite more often than not, ends up being those who have no means of escape who get it the worst. So we were in the subway in Saltivka. Uh, area of Kharkiv, which is one of the worst affected by shelling and aerial bombardment. Old people down there, you know, I met a 90 something year old lady down there, little mm-hmm. kids with two toilets to share between sort of 1,500 people. It's an awful existence because either they've lost their homes or are too scared to go to their homes. These kind of things, perhaps not on this scale because Kharkiv a really big city, but the common themes of human suffering are there throughout all the conflicts that I've covered.
1: For a lot of us, you know, our view of the war, our visual memories of it will be f- through some of the images that you're shooting. What are the images that will stay with you from what you've seen so far in Ukraine?
3: Hey, that's, that's really kind of you to say, But I've also got to say there's some terrific work being done by photographers generally, not only my you know, colleagues from Britain, but internationally, people working around Kiev doing incredibly brave work. And there's some really, really striking and dramatic images. And I think it would be a lot of those that stay with me. What I've seen so far, I mean, from my end, I think it's it's the people that we've met, and particularly Yelena Bolyachenko, I mean, her face. We met another family in a different hospital who'd also been bombed in their apartment. And their daughter, I mean, I think it's, it's the encounters as much as anything that stay with you. And... You know, afterwards, she spoke very good English, 15-year-old girl. Her mum had been badly injured. Her dad had head injuries and an arm injury. And they wanted to leave, but they couldn't because of the mother's injuries. And the daughter came out to speak to me. She couldn't hold back the tears, saying, you know, we really want to leave, but we can't and every time a shell goes off or lands and another shell would land it was adding to ongoing trauma and i felt so sorry for her and i had to give her a hug and she was crying these things stay with me as much as my pictures i think
1: i mean that sounds horrifying
3: it's awful for her i mean it's awful for these people because they can't can't do anything about it and i could, I could have a sort of try and understand what it's like to be shelled in your apartment, to be lying in a hospital, knowing you can't go anywhere and listening to the shelling, that must be very traumatic. And I think these things stay with you as much as anything.
1: Ant, from your experience, do you think the Russians, you know, the stakes for them with this are so high in terms of what might happen globally? Do you expect to see some of the things you saw in Syria and Chechnya? Do you expect to see them on the ground in Ukraine in the next few weeks? What's
0: different? Do I expect to see chemical attacks conducted against the Ukrainians as were conducted against the Syrians? I hope not. But what do I see that's so different? I mean, if a shell sh- lands in a residential block and blows up a family inside, it's incidental whether they're Chechnyan, Syrian, Iraqi or, or Ukrainian, that looks the same. Chopped flesh, ruined lives. But let's see. You know, these are very early days.
1: And from the things you've seen already... Have you witnessed things that make you think there are war crimes being committed already?
0: Well, the shelling of residential areas is a war crime. And I've seen plenty of shelling of residential areas. But, I mean, Russia got away with bombing plenty of hospitals in Syria.
1: Yeah. Your reporting from places like Kharkiv and all of your reporting since you've been in Ukraine... You, know, it's been... you can't
0: pronounce curvy-ree, can you? No, oh, I can't, and I'm not even going to try.
1: <laughs> but it's been—it's been so searing and visceral. You know, sometimes it's almost hard to read. There has been some debate here about whether, given how little we're actually doing to help Ukraine, is it almost voyeuristic to be there, sort of seeing the horror that they're living through? For you, as a reporter, how important is it to be there, doing this to? To be bearing witness
0: I'm always slightly wary of the phrase bearing witness I mean it it, it does hold true it's not what I, I use in my own vernacular um, how do you
1: think about it
0: I think that it's very important I always sound you know like some total proselytizer on this but I acknowledge that in a democratic society information drives debate which leads to executive decision, hopefully in a positive way by an elected government. Now, it doesn't always work out like that, but the baseline you've got to start with is information. So I think journalism does have a very important role. Now, it's a flawed role as well, because journalists get things wrong. And I think there is also a danger that people reading frontline or firsthand reports from the field think that it gives them a better understanding of what goes on than they perhaps should have and therefore, societies think they understand war perhaps better than they actually do. And so in some cases, there is danger that reporting might actually support the edifice of conflict by allowing societies to believe they understand war better than they actually do. That's the kind of abstract concern of mine that is always there. You know, I feel sort of battered and cynical enough by the last 28 years of reporting, not to um, sound too much like Joan of Arc about the whole thing, but it's important And I do it, and that's about the level of discussion I have internally.
1: Where do you go next? How long are you going to stay out there?
0: I don't know. I don't know. I think this war's going to go on for a long time in different forms. And I've been on the road for a long time too, so I imagine that I will rotate out and hand over to another journalist quite soon. And I can't tell you where I'm going tomorrow because I don't know yet.
1: Well, good luck with it.
0: Well, thanks a lot. I'm sorry I'm not sounding more cheery, but believe me, there's no love here.
1: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, The Times war correspondent Anthony Lloyd and chief news photographer Jack Hill. You can keep up with all of their work from Ukraine at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription or in print. The producers today were James Shield and Edward Drummond. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you have any questions about the war in Ukraine, which you'd like us to answer, please do send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.